Ladies and gentlemen, now boarding for Latitude, the travel photography podcast on the Improve Photography Network. And now your hosts, Brian McGuckin and Brent Bergherm. Welcome back to Latitude, the travel photography podcast. And my name is Brent Bergherm and joining me is my co-host, Brian McGuckin. Hi, everybody. And we have today a special guest with us. His name is Doug Kay. Doug, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Good to see both of you. Or yeah. good to hear both of you, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, Doug, we were interested in some of the work that you do. You uh, lead workshops to Cuba. People can find you at DougK.com. I'm sure there's some other resources that uh, you can share where people can find your work. But I wanted to start out with a few basic questions, and then we're just going to kind of roll with the conversation, as it were. Just to start off, if people don't know you, how would you describe yourself? How do you define your work? you as a photographer it's gotten simpler i i consider myself a street photographer these days these days okay. and have been for the past oh let's say three to four years i've abandoned landscape and almost everything else you're looking for the the urban landscape you're looking for people in those in those urban settings is, is that an accurate assessment that's you got it that's it all right sweet what is it about street photography that appeals to you so much doug Oh, that's that's the best question of all. Uh, I I think it's I think it's actually the challenge. Um, street photography on the surface may seem like something that's easy to do. Walk around, you know, you don't have to carry tripods or second cameras or anything. But in fact, I find it the most challenging of any genre to do well, and uh, I enjoy the challenge. Is it the challenge to to capture the? just the essence of the people is it the essence of the place is it all that involved what's what's going on yeah, there it's, for you it's a number of things first of all you know when you're a street photographer you have good days and bad days and sure. that can be a matter of you know how much you're sort of in tune with the vibe of the street it's a uh, if you interact with people how well that goes you know sometimes you're going to want to photograph people and they're not going to be very happy about that and that obviously is a bit of a setback um it's the you know if you go out and shoot landscape you know, you go to Iceland, you take all your gear, you hike out there, you're with a couple of other photographers. Everybody's going to go out there and get the same shot. You went to that location because you know that at a particular time of day, at a particular time of year, when the weather's a certain way, you're going to get this shot. Yeah. You know, thousands of people go to Tunnel View at Yosemite, for example. In street photography, it's all about what's happening right now. It's never going to be the same again. You can't predict it. Uh, it's it's much more of a challenge in terms of reading the situation, reacting quickly, and so forth. I like that. It's the... Um not being able to predict it, but it's when you're just out there wandering, waiting to see what unfolds. That's kind of the beauty of what unfolds is often surprising. And like you said, it doesn't always work out sometimes, but I, I can certainly identify with that. And that's the way I approach travel photography too, which is I mostly do street photography when I travel. You know, I did go to sure. Iceland um, a few years ago with some other photographers and you know, my favorite pictures from Iceland were on the streets of Reykjavik. Nice. <laughs> you know, no, uh, yeah, I've got glaciers and I have all that stuff, but the street stuff in Reykjavik is is what really stuck with me. Okay, so why Cuba? What is it about Cuba that appeals to you so much to where you continue to go back there? Uh, another good question. I, I think Cuba is one of the more unusual places that you can go to from the U.S. that's really close. I mean, it's only 90 miles from Key West. It's easy to get to, and yet it's an entirely different world. If not Cuba, you know, you've got to go 
to somewhere much farther away, much more difficult to get to. And that's what got me there in the beginning. Of course, you know, you see the photographs from Cuba, you see the crumbling infrastructure, you see the people. But what keeps me going back really is the people. You know, the architecture doesn't change, the buildings don't change, but the the people are just marvelous. So uh, that combination of proximity, the fact that it's unusual and great people. Now, you said the architecture doesn't change and the colors and all that don't change. But that's one of my fears is now that Cuba is more open to Americans traveling there, that a lot of the businesses are going to be getting there as well. And I'm afraid that if I don't get there soon, I'm going to miss out on the culture and what Cuba really is, because I feel like so many of the, you know, it's going to become more Americanized in a way with businesses going there and all. So you haven't, you haven't seen that at all yet over the times that you've gone? Oh yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of change. I wouldn't say it's more Americanized, but certainly Raul Castro is bringing more private industry. One of the biggest changes is more cultural. And that is the explosion of public Wi-Fi throughout Cuba, which as you can imagine, is a huge change in the way people just live their lives and interact with one another. You don't see, though, I mean, Cuba's always had America's branding. There are the old cars, the American cars that you see everywhere. Uh, People are wearing, you know, American flag T-shirts and, you know, Yankees T-shirts and even even Cubs and White Shop, White Sox Mm T-shirts, if you can believe that. (laughs) But just for you, I thought I'd throw that in. Uh, um, That's good. (laughs) uh, But it's... But you don't, there's no Starbucks, there's no McDonald's. You're not going to see that kind of stuff there for a very long time. Okay. You know, I guess one question we should have started with is, well, not really a question, but tell us a little bit about when was your first time going? How many times have you been since then? And why do you continue to go back as far as like by yourself or with a group? Could you give us that background? Yeah, my first trip was as a participant with the Santa Fe workshops. They run many, many tours for photographers in Cuba. That was a number of years ago. And that's when I pretty much fell in love with it. I, I came home from that trip, not only with some great photographs, but raving about my experiences to my wife. And she said, stop talking about it. Take me there. <laughs> Nice. So I went online and researched in those days, you know, this is before Obama made any changes or anything. I researched how to get there and what are the rules and discovered that I could go with uh, National Geographic or Smithsonian. This was for a non-photography trip. My wife is not a photographer. And I, I read an article in the New York Times that pointed to this small outfit in Connecticut at the time called... Um, in touch with Cuba. It was a one-man operation. And what they said was that because of the embargo and the licensing restrictions, you're pretty much going to get the same trip regardless of who you go with. So I called up this guy in Connecticut, seemed like a good guy, booked the trip, went, loved it. And so the second trip, this is the second trip. And at that point, I asked him, I said, hey, are you interested in doing photo workshops? I'll take care of the photography and the marketing and signing up the people. And you take care of logistics, the hotels, the meals, the transportation, which is his area of expertise. Uh, I've now been back there eight times, uh, six of those leading my own workshops and uh, with the same guy, uh, Elmay Castillo, out of In Touch with Cuba. That's very cool. If people are going to take one of your workshops, what could they expect to be photographing? I think I saw on your website, you have some that focus just on Havana, and then you have others that go elsewhere. So talk to us a little bit about those differences and what kind of uh, experience they should expect. Yeah, the uh, I do two ways. One is a, it's about a six-day trip, I guess five full days to Havana, 
Havana only. And that is, oh, it's sort of half street photography and half sort of specialty stuff. We arrange, it varies every time because you never really know what you're going to be able to set up until you get there, even though I have producers and fixers there. But we'll do, we'll do ballet. We'll visit uh, some of the museums. We'll visit a boxing ring. Uh, we, we actually hire some of the ballerinas to act as models for us at times. Uh, but it's, let's say, the richest part of it is probably the street photography, which is wandering the streets of Havana Vieja, which is old Havana. The 10-day trip is actually my favorite uh, which includes that portion, plus we also go to two other towns. We go to the far western province of Pinar del Rio, to a town called Vinales, uh, that's tobacco farming country, visit a tobacco farm. And then we go to the southern side of Cuba, to Trinidad, uh, and that's one of the oldest cities. That city's just a little over 500 years old, uh, and there, uh, it's a lot of things, great music, food, all sorts of things like that. But again, I would say the majority of it is just getting out in the morning, shooting on the streets, shooting on the streets in the afternoon and the evenings. So uh, the advantage of the longer trip is you get to see the countryside. I, I prefer right. it quite a bit, not just because it's longer. And I think that uh, the, this past year I did three trips. Two of them were Havana only, and those were more popular. I sold those quickly, but I think, I think people miss out a lot. On the other hand, for a lot of people, something that's a little under a week is a lot more convenient. So when you went to Cuba for your first time, what were some things that kind of surprised you? Hmm. Um, it, it, it's such an unusual place. Even after eight visits, I learn something new every time I'm there. I might learn something about the way the government operates, the way the people live, the way the black market functions, things like that. Cuba is a country that in 1959 decided to go a different direction from the rest of the world. So you have you have this country where things are sort of frozen. And I don't mean, you know, the cars are from 59 and before. Not all the cars, but the American cars. Um, now, that doesn't mean they're all in the same condition they were in 1959. Some of them are very old and falling apart, and some of them are very well maintained. Same with the buildings. You have a, a city in Havana that when you look at it and you see, literally, there's been no maintenance since 1959. None of the buildings have been, or very few of the buildings have been kept up. So you see a city, and it's not just a one or two block area, it's a huge city. And you can just tell from looking at it how magnificent this city must have been in the 40s and 50s. It was just gorgeous. And that beauty is still there, even though it's crumbling and falling apart. Uh, so that was a, a that was just a shock. Also, the fact that, you know, so many places you go to do photography, there's, you know, oh, this is the street for that. And this is another block over here. This is the whole city. Uh, it's, a, it's a very large area. So when we, we get there with people, you know, we get to the airport, we take the bus to the hotel. People are even in the parking lot of the airport. They say, oh, God, look at that old car. And they want to take pictures. I say, don't worry. Don't worry. You're going to see plenty, <laughs> plenty of old cars. Then they see the buildings. Oh, God, look at that building. There are buildings that here in the U.S., you know, uh, unless you go to Detroit or somewhere, you're going to say, oh, my God, this is a famous building. And all the photographers want to go there. There are hundreds and hundreds of them. So I think that was the big shock is that, that the whole country is this way. If someone was to come with you, you know, when I think of Cuba, it's the street photography that would interest me the most. What kind of interaction do they have with the people? How are how are you treated or how do people react to you with taking the pictures? You know, whether you ask them or if you just go up to their car and you just start to 
you know, snap some photos. What kind of interaction do you tend to have with the locals? Yeah, it's it's a very different kind of experience. And it, in fact, it's sort of a street photographer's candy store. I take people there. Most of the people who come with me are not street photographers. They're people who are interested in Cuba or interested in street photography, but it's not what they normally do. But when you get there, you find it's really easy. People are very willing to be photographed. Some of them would like to be paid for that. And sometimes you pay them, sometimes you don't. But they're very willing to be photographed. They're very friendly. Even if they don't speak English and you don't speak Spanish, you can communicate with them. And it's a lot of laughter and fun. Every city in the world has a different pace to it, I guess you'd say. You know, in San Francisco, where I live, for example, when I go to downtown San Francisco and photograph people, it's usually in the financial district or the tech area like south of market. And people are always moving. And so your photography is generally not so much street portraiture, but street candids where the people are on the move. They're, they're sort of props or objects in your photography, but they may not be the primary subject. You go to New York, surprisingly, you have more opportunities for people who are not moving because New York has a number of parks throughout the city and you can go photograph people in the parks and interact with them perhaps. In Cuba, nobody's doing anything. Everybody's sitting around or standing around. <laughs> and that means that everywhere you go, there's something that's worth photographing. Uh, there are people who are worth photographing, and you can talk to them and photograph them, and uh, it's easy. So the, the problem is, if there is a problem, you come home from Cuba and you say, oh, I like street photography, and I'm really good at it because I found this to be so easy. And then you discover in your own city, it's not like Cuba. People aren't as friendly. People aren't as willing to be photographed. People aren't standing around. So I'm not sure if I answered the question, but that's oh. sort of the, uh, the the experience that you get there. Yeah, that's quite all right. Let's talk about maybe some logistics of traveling there. You mentioned you work with this uh, InTouch uh, travel group. And what kind of uh, restrictions do people need to make sure that they make sure they're okay with as far as if they're a U.S. citizen? Uh, certainly, there's some restrictions for traveling there still, even though our previous administration did open things up uh, considerably. What are some of the logistics for just traveling there still? Yeah, and let's let's totally separate, like as you mentioned, American from non-American. Because if you're not American, you can go to Cuba like you can go anywhere else in the world. It's it's a sure. unique problem to America, and that is that uh, there was previously an embargo that was done by executive order. And then I think it was during the Reagan administration that the Congress uh, codified this and made the embargo into law, which means that the executive branch can't just undo it. It has to be undone by an act of Congress. And the embargo is managed by the United States Treasury Department. The embargo says basically nothing can go in and out of Cuba, between America and Cuba, except people can go in under one of 14 classes of licenses. And the, the one that we use is a license called people-to-people -people exchange. And as the name implies, it's set up so that Americans can get to know P Cubans and Cubans can get to know Americans. And that used to require a formal license. You needed a hard copy license from the Treasury Department, and we used to get that. In fact, we still have one because they they last for two years. It's about $10,000 in legal fees. It takes months to get. Uh, it requires wow. quite a bit, a bit of negotiation, but all the people who operated people-to-people -people exchanges had to get it and, and did have this thing. When in December of 2015, I think that's when it was, Obama said, 
you know, we want to open things up, but I can't change the law. What I can do is change the interpretation of this license. And what it means under Obama is you still have to follow the same rules, and there are rules, but you don't need a written license. So, uh, it used to be that you had to show your license going in and out. Now, you just have to work within the rules. And if somebody asks you, you say, yes, I'm traveling under the auspices of a people-to-people exchange. So, it's become quite informal, I would say. Now, okay. it used to also be that the only way to get there from the U.S., there were two ways. You could take a charter flight, which was required this license and all that, or you could bypass the whole thing. You could fly to Cancun, Cozumel, or um, Cayman Islands, and just take a flight there, fly into Cuba, fly back to those destinations, and then to the U.S. And it used to be that you'd say, you'd get to Cuba, and they would say, if you went that route, they say, oh, do you want me to stamp your passport? And you'd say, no, 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 don't stamp my passport. I don't want any record of having been in Cuba. And now, they don't even ask, I don't think. They stamp your passport, and you're, you're proud to have that. And even if you came back through Cozumel or Grand Cayman, you'd come back through, and the uh, Customs and Immigration would say, have you been to Cuba? And you'd say, yes, because you you never lie to these people. And they would say, welcome home. It was just that hmm. simple. Anyway, nowadays, uh, until you know Trump might change it, but at the moment, there are actually scheduled flights. You can go online and you can book a scheduled lo- uh, flight from New York or Miami, I think Los Angeles, like you could book any other flight to Havana. And the only complications going to be that you show up at the airport and you have to fill out a little bit of paperwork and check the box that says people to people exchange but it's it's really pretty simple now to go in and out of Cuba on your own you don't you don't need a workshop you used used to be you needed a workshop or something like that to get you in there uh, now people can go on their own and they do that was going to be my next question can an individual go under this people to people exchange uh, arrangement yes so, sounds like they can yeah ha- happening every day and then what about once you get there and you land, uh, there's still the financial embargo, if you want to call it that, the restrictions. So my ATM card isn't going to work. Yeah, so you're probably bringing cash. Yeah. it's, it's how, all, how does that it, all work? It's all cash. Uh, even if you're from another country, there's virtually no, uh, there are ATMs, but they're not international. Uh, you could use a credit card maybe in a ho- in one of the larger hotels, maybe at the airport. But generally, you've got to take cash for everything. Um, if you know, it's one of those things. You know, from my perspective, I look at it and I say, well, if you've been there, it's really easy. Well, it's like going sure. anywhere. You know, I just got back from Amsterdam and Paris, another trip, and um, you know. Once you've been to those places and you know your way around, it's really easy. If you've never been to Cuba, it's going to be awkward. But there are taxis. You can find your way around fairly easily. One of the interesting things for people who want to go on their own, uh, it's very hard and very expensive to get hotel rooms. Uh, The hotel we used to stay at, which was the Parque Central, last time I was there, the rooms uh, converted to dollars. The rooms were going for $723 a night. Ouch. Wow. And that's with a one-year advance booking. So, oh. needless to say, we don't use that hotel anymore, and we stay farther and farther from the center of Habana Vieja. But the best, not best kept secret, but one of the best things there is Airbnb. Airbnb is very big in Cuba. There are hundreds of uh, apartments in Havana alone. Uh, the apartments are regulated by the government, they're inspected by the government, so you don't really have much risk about getting something that isn't um, 
clean and healthy and all that. Uh, so people who want to go on their going, I recommend just, uh, yes, I'd love you to come take my workshops. But if you want to go by yourself, book a place to stay through Airbnb, book your airline flights online, and uh, just remember to take everything with you because there's nothing there. You're not going to be able to, it's going to be very hard to buy, a, impossible to buy a battery. It's not even easy to find a high capacity SD card. Your mobile phone may work very well, especially T-Mobile. Uh, I think now you have Verizon, uh, maybe even AT&T are working there. Uh, very expensive if you to use them, but they do work. Um, but it's it's very practical to go there now. Quick question nice. just with, with the currency. Do they accept American dollars or does it have to be the Cuban peso? Oh, you're, you're asking all the right questions. I love it. <laughs> um, no, you have to convert your money. And uh, what's the, however, they have as a way to sort of get back at the embargo, the Cubans charge a 10% premium on top of the conversion rate for American dollars. So your actual conversion penalty might be, you know, 13% or so. So what you need to do is convert your dollars into either euros or Canadian dollars and take those with you. You'll actually save money by doing the double conversion. And then once you're there, uh, your hotel can change money, but you won't get the best rate there. You need to you need to sort of ask where the good rates are. Actually, getting changing money at the airport when you first arrive is a pretty good deal, as well as uh, the Hotel Nacional is another good place. They have a real a real bank in there. So take cash, but take euros or Canadian dollars. Okay. Yeah, they have these bank locations around, so you can just very conveniently. Or is it like in other European cities where they have these little change houses that are charging their own rate on top of that? Uh, or is it just of, all, is it all banks? It's none of the above. Oh. It's, it's hard to find a bank and there are no little exchange places. <laughs> all right. You, you end up doing it at the airport. That's what, what, what I do is I go in there and I change money up front. I mean, I know I'm coming back, so I'm not too concerned about having leftover Cuban pesos. Right. But the, you can change at the airport. You can change at your hotel. You'll just pay a higher rate. That's all. Got it. You won't get quite okay. the deal. But again, do it with uh, with euros. Uh, jumping back to if somebody's listening and they're planning their trip and they've got their flight scheduled, they have their Airbnb. When I get to the airport and once whatever currency exchange has taken place, uh, you know, I figure out my transportation. And depending where I'm at, in a lot of places, I like to have my transportation figured out at like the booth inside the airport instead of just going out and like finding a taxi what is it like there as far as can you just go out and find a taxi and you'll you'll be pretty safe and they're not going to like charge the daylights out of you or do you book that inside the airport to make sure that you're not being ripped off yeah there's there's nothing like a booth it's 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 not that kind of place so you will you'll go out and you'll find a taxi i have rarely rarely been overcharged by taxis they don't have meters they have sort of informal fixed rates you know you might if you're going from the airport to uh the middle of havana you might spend uh, 25 cuc cuc is the they have two currencies they have a currency for cuban citizens and one for tourists and they're they differ by a factor of 25 so one cuc or kook as we call it is close to one dollar but that's 25 Cuban pesos. As a tourist, as a visitor, you will probably never see uh, a Cuban peso 
unless somebody rips you off and gives you the wrong currency in change. But again, it's it rarely, rarely happens. I've only had it happen to me once in eight years. And the people I'm with uh, have almost never had it happen because the first thing we do is show them to two different kinds of currencies and how to tell them apart. But there's really not much haggling over things like cab rides, um, you know, and it's all pretty reasonable. You can once you're in Havana, you can get around for usually a a five or ten CUC, which is a five or ten dollar uh, cab ride, almost anywhere. Not bad. I'm taking a quick look as we talk on this Airbnb, and I plugged in six guests, and I can get a place for fifty bucks a night. That is not too bad at all. No, and it's and it's and it's going to be nice. You're going to get uh, a very basic breakfast. Your host and hostess will cook it for you. They they might not speak a single word of English, uh, but okay. you'll, you'll probably you'll probably make a friend for life. I've had some of my students from here in the U.S. go that way, you know, and you know they've managed to get pictures back and forth and bought bottles of rum for one another. They've had a great time. So <laughs> uh, it's it's I've never. I've never had a problem with someone staying in what they're called in Cuba. They're called casas particulares. Uh, and these are, this is something that's relatively new. You know, any, any private business is a new concept in Cuba. Uh, it started really, it started under Fidel. And then when control was handed over to Raul, it, it expanded. And people are you know, only in the last few years have people been allowed to rent their homes out. It's a boon to their economy because it's, you know, remember the, the basic Cuban salary that everybody gets, it, remember, it's a communist country, and everything's provided for you, supposedly. Uh, you know, you get your ration coupons and all this, uh, and your basic salary is only going to be 40 to $60 per month. It's barely enough to live on. And uh, what happens is that people are looking for any way they can to supplement that income. And that's created... That's created a beginning of a middle class in Cuba. You've got anybody who can work in tourism can make more money because they get tips. People who do uh, rent their homes out, although they have to pay extremely high taxes based on what they rent, uh, it still is additional income that they aren't otherwise able to make. So it's it's helping. Staying in the Cuban homes and eating in the Cuban private restaurants is one of the few things that really does help the Cuban people. So I encourage it. I believe that we're all kind of creatures of habit. And whenever I travel, when I get to a location, there's usually something that I tend to always do. Or in your case, being that you go back time after time after time, what is uh, either something that you tend to always do when you arrive there or what's something that you always look forward to each time you go? Uh, the rum. <laughs> Seriously, Cuban, I'm, I, you know, I'm not that much of a drinker, but Cuban rum is marvelous there's nothing like it on the planet and um i don't smoke cigars normally but cuban cigars are amazing and having cuban rum and cigars together is an almost religious experience they're they're made for each other uh, but seriously one of the things i love doing is uh working with dancers there and again we we try to go to a dance school we hire some uh ballerinas from the national ballet uh to work as models for us there are uh, you know, the Malacone, you've seen this. This is the big seawall where everybody hangs out at night. Uh, mm -hmm. Just getting down to the Malacone and experience what life is like there, particularly on Fridays, Saturdays, Sunday nights, uh, getting out there, you know, 10, 11 p.m. Uh, it's just filled with people who are just hanging out. It's essentially like, you know, going to a mall here in the U.S. You know, it's where, where everybody is. 
it's actually much better than a mall. I shouldn't say. That. Oh yeah, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> but I, uh, I've experienced a similar thing in uh, Ecuador. But you know, Havana would have its its own unique flavor for sure, and that would yeah. be sweet. The, the only strange thing is, I mentioned Wi-Fi. One one time, I went to the Malacone, went down there on a Wednesday or Thursday night, and it was ten o'clock, and it was deserted. I couldn't figure out where everybody was. And this is right when they had added Wi-Fi on certain certain hotspots. And everybody was hanging out on uh, uh, Bente Trace, which is uh, 23rd Avenue. Uh, go up there and there's like a two block long hotspot. And everybody's there with their phones and their iPads and their laptops. And, and the, the social scene had moved there. So it, it's disrupted the culture so much that the government is now adding Wi-Fi back on the Malacone so that people can still go where they used to hang out <laughs> hmm, nice because it's it's sort of pe- people sort of miss it uh, other places you know some of the places that we include are things like the revolution the museum of the revolution some people like it some people hate it but i find it fascinating to see uh, the totally one-sided perspective of the um of the Cuban Revolution, uh, not so much a photographic thing, except that the building itself is impressive. It's the old uh, presidential palace, so it's a neat building. The boxing, again, some people love the boxing, some people hate watching boxing. Uh, we go to a place that's a, a, a famous gym for training boxers, and a lot of big time boxers have come out of Cuba. Um, what about what about baseball? You know, baseball is big in, in Cuba, right? Yeah, it's very big. I've only once been there when baseball was really going on. You know, they don't do the normal baseball season that we do here, which is primarily the summer half of the year. They tend to do a little more in the winter. Of course, that's when I'm there, but I've never managed to catch it right. It's, I think it's maybe more of a, an autumn thing there. So I've been to one baseball game. It wasn't uh, one of the major games. It was a, a local town. Uh, a lot of fun, though. One thing I don't think we've touched on yet is uh, restrictions. Are there any photography restrictions, you know, as far as like you can't take pictures of certain government buildings or like what restrictions are you aware of or have you come across? Yeah, the the one that you get in a lot of countries is, you know, don't photograph the army or police. Not a good idea there. And the other, though, is there is a zone in Havana, which is a no photography zone. They have they have signs up on the streets. And this is where the government residences are and they're they're quite palatial and all that but it's it's just a, a small area in a part of town called miramar and um uh it's not too serious but you just you know that's it other than that no restrictions um you don't have people looking over your shoulder you know it's not like going to uh my my impression of China, where people are sort of checking up on saying you can photograph this, but you can't photograph that. We we don't have any of those kind of restrictions. Most of the restrictions having to do with going to Cuba are on the American side, and that has to do with you know following the terms of the license, which, as I said, is no longer really being enforced. And the other is what you can bring back. It used to be that you could only bring back music CDs, books, and artwork, and the and paintings and photographs, you weren't even allowed to bring back picture frames, only the paintings or photographs themselves. Wow. Uh, but, but but picture frames were forbidden. And there were no other goods permitted. You couldn't bring back a T-shirt or a cap or anything like that. Obama did change that. And he made it so you could bring back $400 worth of goods of any sort, a maximum of $100 of which could be tobacco or alcohol products. 
I don't remember the exact limit now, but even that has been somewhat lifted. Boy, I should know. It's been it's been a few weeks since I've been there, so I've forgotten. <laughs> but but um, you're certainly not unlimited. I think you might be relatively unlimited on goods. Although it, you know it's hard to spend much money there. There's not there's not much that you would want to bring back other than alcohol and tobacco. You know, t-shirts, caps, things like that, maybe. But um, uh, unless you're a, a a buyer of Cuban art, and you know, it takes it takes a fair amount of knowledge of Cuban art to know what's good and what isn't. It's um it's a it's a fairly unusual style. So anyway, that's it. You know, alcohol and cigars and rum. That's what I come back. All with. right. <laughs> have you have you made it out to any of the tobacco fields at all? I just think those would be kind of interesting to to shoot. Yeah, the the ten day workshop takes you to Vinales, which is a uh, a farming town, and we we particularly go to one uh, good sized tobacco farm. Uh, we you know roam around in the fields. We go through the houses where the leaves are dried, depending on the season whether they're actually drying them at that point or not. Uh, we sit down and get a demonstration of uh, cigar rolling and um, uh, and smoke a few and you know just get to see how tobacco farmers really live out there so yeah it's great what about seasons you know obviously being that it's a Caribbean island you know the weather it could be hot during what would be the summer for us here in the in the states what uh what have you found to be the best season or time to go down yeah we go the the first trip of the year I go is usually uh, Early November, you're just catching the end of the hurricane season. So far, we've been lucky. January is a great time of year, but there are a lot of festivals. You have to watch out. You're not there for the cigar festival or something because the place goes crazy. Uh, and then the last trip that I do is usually early March. Once you get into April through October, you're talking about a lot of heat and humidity. And even even on these trips, you know, you can hit some really hot days, and it it, it wears people out. We more and more. We find that we do siestas. We'll we'll shoot in the morning, take the mid afternoon off, and then shoot again late afternoon and evening because um, it can get pretty hot, especially when you're, you know, out walking around on the streets all day long. It's it's quite quite intense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I we have been thinking of one thing: is bottled water available? Yeah, bottled water is available and necessary. readily. Yeah, yeah, and you because have easy, relatively easy to find, unless there are shortages. Good. There, there are shortages of everything. You know, we've been there. You know, during a toilet paper shortage, we've been there during a beer shortage, which was the most serious, of course. <laughs> um, but sometimes we've had trouble finding bottled water. Usually not. I mean, we we buy it every day and put it on our bus, so everybody's yeah. got a couple of bottles. You know, most of the problems I've had with students and guests has to do with people uh, not heeding the warnings about the water and either drinking the water or eating vegetables that have been washed in tap water in a in a non-filtered restaurant and, um, yeah. and paying the price for that oh yeah and then i have another question about transportation if we're an independent you had mentioned about getting down to trinidad or vinales what kind of transportation can we expect i presume you're not going to recommend people rent a car you can rent a car. Some people have done that, but the best, it's its going to sound harder than it is, but the best is to find someone who will give you a ride. Find a cab driver or something who will give you a ride. Okay. Even though it's a long trip. I mean, if you go from Vinales to Trinidad, that's, you know, that's eight hours of driving. That's a long mm. trip. But right. what people have done is you ask around. 
It's really funny. And you find a guy who knows a guy who says, oh, yeah, my sister lives in Vinales and I'll give you a ride and I'll stay with her. Nice. <laughs> and, wow. And it's relatively easy to do. Um, and you might be in a half broken down, rattling, non-air conditioned. You certainly won't have air conditioning, probably taxi. Um, but you will experience part of Cuba that way. Put it that oh, way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? One thing you guys didn't ask me about was the food. Ask yeah, me, I was, was going to get there. Ask me about the food. <laughs> well, Please, I think we don't need to just food. tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is one of the sort of shocking things. When I first started going to Cuba, um, the food was about the last thing you'd write home about. It was, you know, rice and beans and chicken and pork everywhere you went. Fish. But it was bland and it wasn't interesting. Many of the restaurants, or most of the restaurants, were government-owned. Now they have uh, Paladars, which are privately-owned restaurants. They used to have a limit, I think it was like 12 seats maximum, and then it went up to right. 25, and now it's up to 50. So you can operate a private restaurant with up to 50 seats. If you go to 51, they will shut you down. Some of my favorite mm. restaurants are out of business because they had too many seats. And they, wow. you know, they they investigate this stuff. It's a serious thing. By the time you're up to 50 seats, you can run a fairly serious restaurant. Uh, and that means that the people who own them can bring in uh, experience from Europe, for example. So the quality of the food has shot way up. And now when you go there, Everything's on TripAdvisor and the way the restaurant and so you have competition and you have money and you have experience and the competition is furious. So if if you're one of the top 10 restaurants in Havana, you're going to have terrific food and you're going to have crowds you know, beating down the door. So, you know, if you go if you go to TripAdvisor and you pick any one of the top 100 restaurants in Havana, you're going to have a good meal. Put it this way, people go on our workshops and they said, oh, God, enough lobster. I'm tired of lobster. <laughs> because, you know, you start to get lobster with every meal. We, we go to really good restaurants. That's one thing that's important. One thing I learned about street photography is first decide where you're going to have lunch and then worry about the photography after that. Sure. So, so uh, same is true in Cuba. So we go to really good restaurants. And uh, what we're trying to do now is throw in more variety because – a lot of them are quite similar, but, you know, we've got pizza restaurants, some Italian restaurants, we've got uh, authentic Cuban, we've got a little bit of South American, like Argentinian beef, but uh, the quality of the food has shot way up. That's an interesting change. Well, you will never hear me say the words enough lobster, <laughs> that, other, other than the fact that I just said it. Yeah, yeah, but, but that wasn't really you talking, was it? No, 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 no of course not. All right. Is there anything else, Brian? I'm. No, no. Is there anything Doug, that you feel we haven't discussed or mentioned that should stand out to you as far as Cuba goes? No, I'll, I'll come back to the very first thing you said, which is worrying. You know, worrying that that Cuba's changing, whether it's because of Americans or not. Cuba is changing. Uh, there are more and more people coming. The infrastructure can't really support much. You know, there there's only one hotel. I guess there are now two new hotels being built. I'll often get email from someone saying, "Oh, Doug, there's a new hotel in Havana." I'll look it up, and it's just some existing hotel that's been bought or renamed. 
there are cruise ships going there. And of course, like anywhere else, you want to avoid that part of town when the cruise ships come in because they just unload thousands of people in an area that can't really handle it. The remote locations, Trinidad, Vinales, those places are more impacted by the influx of tourism because they're smaller towns. Uh, you know, you, you see during the day, tour buses will come in and you'll say, wow, where did all these buses come from? Havana, except for the cruise ship thing, is not so overwhelmed because it's a big city and the influx of tourists isn't as noticeable. So having said that, yes, Cuba is changing. Yes, tourist tourism is changing Cuba. However, it's still a fascinating place. I wouldn't hesitate to go, and I would say to anybody who's listening, look at it this way. No matter how much it's changing, it's only going to be, it's only going to change more. So right. don't don't wait. You know, get to Cuba. It's a very very unique part of the world, and it's close and easy. So you know, you know, go for, go for a weekend. Why not? It's fun. I have wanted to go to Cuba for years, and now that things have kind of opened up a little bit more, I, I think the the itch is getting there even stronger. So I, I may have to look into one of your trips. So can you tell us again really quick if any of the listeners are interested in going to Cuba and want to go the route of doing a workshop with you, how can we find out more information about that? Yeah, just go to dougk.com, D-O-U-G-K-A-Y-E.com and look on the workshop tab. Uh, I haven't updated it. I haven't yet set the schedule for the next season's workshops, but I'll do that soon. So that'll probably be, you know, November, January, and March again, those three uh, those three workshops. So go there and uh, at the very least, just put your name on the list and you'll be notified as soon as we update the schedule. Okay. Can you tell us, uh, give us an estimate of cost for the workshop? like? Do I assume people probably cover their own travel to get there, but can you tell us roughly what a typical workshop would cost? Yeah, what, what we found, unlike most workshops, is once you get yourself to Miami and stay overnight maybe in the hotel in Miami, we cover everything. We cover all the meals, all the admission fees, every tip, even tips for drivers and guides and hotel porters, everything. We found that Americans in particular aren't comfortable with tipping. So we'd say, you know, you could actually show up with no money, except maybe for buying a little extra water and you'd be fine. Um, the trips, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's, as I remember, it's three, I think it's $3,000 roughly for the six day and four thousand dollars for the 10 day now those are last year's this past year's prices because of the hotel situation they'll probably go up by about five hundred dollars so figure thirty five hundred dollars or forty five hundred dollars depending on whether you want the short or the long trip and i'm not looking at my website right now so forgive me if i'm off but i think that's roughly it okay so you guys take a boat there from miami or do you no, no, do we, a little take, quick flight we take a flight it's a 25 minute flight from miami okay I mean, that used to that used, when we when we went on charters, that was five hundred and fifty dollars round trip for a twenty five minute flight each way. But mm. because of the schedule there, and also they charged eighty five dollars for a visa. Now that we can take a scheduled airline, it's half of that. It's two seventy five round trip or so much something like that, and twenty five dollars for the visa. Again, we include that. We include the visa. We include the the exit fee. And if you compare our workshops to any of the others. Uh, you'll find that we're probably the cheapest workshops to Cuba, uh, especially when you compare what's included and what isn't. Because, you know, most workshops are going to say, oh, dinner on your own, lunch on your own, tips not included. You got to pay the exit fee, things like that. So compare apples to apples. 
Awesome. Well, hopefully Brent and I will be doing a Latitude podcast from the streets of Cuba someday in the near future. That would be awesome. <laughs> the do. fact and that it's you've you've made it easier for me to convince my wife to let me go, I think. And that's the big thing, because I actually have the first week in January where I've got nothing to do. I might find myself on the streets of Vanna crossing my fingers really hard. It's really, it's a good time to go. And I'll tell you, my wife, again, non-photographer, she went with me on one trip that was a non-photography trip. And then she went with me on the first one that I ran. She she was also with me on, on a photography trip. And she would go back again. She loves it, except for awesome. the fact that, that, you know, I go to the same places every time. And she says, you know, I've been there twice. I don't need to see those same things again. So, yeah. Awesome. Do it. Doug, we just had uh, two last things here. We like to end each episode uh, just sharing a dream destination of the week. So I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you would be willing to share with us. What's a destination that is kind of a, a dream of yours to visit someday? Well, the one that's on the top of my list right now is Morocco. Uh, that's a place I very much want to go again based on what people have been coming, the photographs that people have been coming back with most recently. That's uh, uh, They just... They love it. So I'm ready to go. Awesome. And then we also like to end usually saying goodbye in a foreign language. And since Brent and I have already done this before, uh, is there any other language other than Spanish that you know of that you know how to say goodbye in? <laughs> and, and if not, since it's just Cuba, yeah, I can do it in uh, Hawaiian. Aloha. There you go. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Yeah, awesome. I got away with it, didn't I? Yep. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Doug, for, for joining us on this episode. And uh, thanks, Brent, for being here with me as well. And listeners, thanks for joining us. And we will look forward to being with you next time. So this is Brent again with a quick little addendum to our interview with Doug Kay. We certainly appreciate his time and his expertise and knowledge on the subject of traveling to Cuba. However, things have changed a little bit. On June 16, President Trump gave a speech on new regulations, on new dealings, and how we're going to be uh, dealing with Cuba. This idea of the people-to-people travel is going to change. So in the Facebook group, I've created a link to a document that is published by the Treasury Department. It's the Office of Foreign Assets Control, specifically, and it has to deal with uh, Cuba and the new changes that are coming. So while the president did make an announcement of what's going to happen, those new regulations have not been written yet. So as yet, we're still under the uh, Obama administration regulations. But this is straight from that document, and that is, quote, the president instructed Treasury to issue regulations that will end individual people-to-people travel. The announced changes do not take effect until the new regulations are issued, end quote. So we can expect changes to happen. We can expect that the ease of individual travel to be restricted and we'll have to go back to group travel. That's one thing that traveling with a group that Doug Kay is involved in is still definitely going to be legal for U.S. citizens. So that's not something we need to worry about. They do have the license and the like. So if you go on your own, it's just going to be considered illegal travel, uh, according to the Treasury Department. And there might be some problems when you get back. So take a look at that document for yourself. Do a little more research for yourself, please. Just understand that things are changing and it's going to be problematic for individual travel. One other item in this document uh, does state that if you have already purchased airline tickets or have done something, at least one item 
prior to the president's announcement, then you can continue your travel. And even when the regulations do change, you'll be able to complete your travel and you'll be fine. You're going to be grandfathered in that way. If you've already got plans to go and they announce uh, those changes tomorrow, let's say, uh, from what the Office of Foreign Assets Control is saying in this document, you're going to be fine. You can still go anyway. All right. I hope that is helpful to you. Certainly do your own research, please. And uh, travel to Cuba is still something that is heavily regulated. And uh, we want you to be as much in the know as possible. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you'll tune back again as we continue talking more travel stuff here on Latitude, the Travel Photography Podcast.